Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You're listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast. And today we have on Dr. Charles Schlein, who is the Senior VP and Chair of Pediatric Services at Northwell Health and a Chair and Professor of Pediatrics at uh, the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. Uh, I also should mention he is also my dad. Uh, Dr. Schlein, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Eric. Yes. Uh, I think the father thing probably should come first. Um, and I am still working. It wasn't was. I am still. I said you are. I said you are those things. So good. Good. How are you? Great. Good. good. So, Better. you know, you're, you're, uh, you know, for people who are watching this on YouTube, as opposed to just listening, uh, you were clearly home right now and uh, you're recovering from this nasty virus, huh? I am. Um, yeah, I've been sick. I was sick since March. The ninth, I got it very early, as you know, ended up in the hospital for about five or six days, almost two weeks in when my oxygen levels dropped. Fortunately, I never did not end up on a ventilator and um, went home and it progressively uh, have done better. I'm I'm in pretty good shape working from home, still a little winded, but I'm coming around. Interesting. Yeah, for sure. So. Just before we get into me peppering you with a bunch of questions, because I have a lot of questions, and I think there is some relationship to do what you do in medicine and also investing. Uh, but before we get into any of that, just can you just tell our listeners a little bit about like how things happened and how things have progressed and kind of where you're at now? I know you you did a really wonderful New York Times op-ed article, and you know you were on CNN with Don Lemon. You kind of been around Good Morning America, but for those who haven't heard those things, and I will put those links in the show notes. Uh, can you just just tell us a little bit about how this all progressed and 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 kind of your your view and perspective on it? I'm talking about my disease per se. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, pretty interesting. You know, I I I got sick at work, and um, there are a couple little ironies that occurred. Um, the morning I got sick, I was part of the emergency operations committee for Northwell Health, which. Um, for those outside the New York area, which, you know, is the largest uh, health system in the New York metro area, actually one of the largest in the country. And that, it was that morning at that meeting that uh, leadership decided to not meet as a group anymore. So there I was um, getting sick a few hours after that meeting. I'd gone back to my office. I had a couple other meetings in the, in the office. So this was all before safe distancing, you know. And social distancing. And um, so a number of people went out on furlough for, you know, really to be quarantined for two weeks because they were in touch with me when in the afternoon I started having shaking chills and went home, had a fever and said, oh, boy, I could have this disease. And we didn't know too much at that point outside of the Chinese experience and a little bit in New York. And um, what was interesting, the other thing that was interesting, I ran pretty high fever for two days and I felt great. I was telling people that yeah, this was sort of like a mild to moderate flu. I'll, and I said, ironically, I'll probably end up 
back at work before all the people that I furloughed. I was feeling so good. And then about the fifth day in, it sort of hit me. And I progressively just felt horrible. You know, as doctors, we use the term malaise all the time. And I've written about this. But I think uh, at the beginning of this, I actually found out what malaise really is. Um, I didn't want to get off the couch. And and for listeners who don't know what malaise even means, what what does that mean? Just bad feeling. And it, it, you know, when people say, I have malaise, they, you know, they don't feel themselves. They feel sluggish. But this really took over. Um, and I got to the point, like I had friends and family bringing lots of food over to me to the doorstep. And I got to the point I could barely make it to the door to pull the stuff in. And there were days I didn't even have the strength to like warm it up and it would just sit on the counter. And then the next morning I would sort of dump it. And this got worse and worse. And then the other major symptom over those that next week was I started having burning in my chest, both sides. And in retrospect, I realized it was probably my lungs getting worse and worse and inflamed. And so between this malaise and this burning, I lost over the course of that week and a half, two weeks, about 15 pounds or so. You know, I had felt pretty good about having a pulse oximeter from the beginning of this. I had one at home. And in fact, I was telling friends, you should go buy one. That was before uh, everybody ran out of them. Because I knew that the symptom that was going to get most of us was oxygen levels falling with this pneumonia from coronavirus. And I'd been monitoring myself continuously during all that time with those symptoms. And then on a Friday night, so this was about 11 days after the beginning of symptoms, my levels dropped a little bit that evening rather than normal of 97, 98%. I was running more like 94, 95. So I said, well, it's not that bad. It's a little low. Let's keep an eye on it. I went to sleep, got up in the morning, and I was down about 90. And I said, this is not good. And then I was 89. And I said, I think I need to go into the hospital. So I called my colleagues, uh, got an ambulance out for me, went out to one of our hospitals, North Shore Hospital out in Manhasset on Long Island, was seen in the ER, was on a stretcher, I was on oxygen, and I knew that within the next couple hours I could end up on a ventilator, and I knew ending up on a ventilator in this disease, um, you know, isn't great news like you end up on a ventilator there's a reasonable chance um you might not make it and uh, so that that was the time that was the part that got really scary um fortunately i um got better i not got better but stabilized over the next few hours. Uh, in fact, you know, a few things happened during those couple hours. One, these infectious disease specialists were coming in to talk to me about experimental protocols, thinking that I would end up in the ICU that afternoon and on a ventilator. So we were already talking about which protocol I should be entered in. Um, well, and and what, were they, what, what kind of protocols were they looking at? 
These were, you know, these are the IL-6, IL-1 what does that uh, mean? protocols out of some of the companies uh, to basically treat uh, the inflammatory state. Uh, what is, it, what is IL? What, 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 what does that mean? So these are mediators that circulate um, associated with many different types of infection that are thought to be elevated, causing a lot of the problems in very severe respiratory, you know, lung failure uh, during the acute viral infection. So some of the people or a number of the people who are on ventilators have been entered into these studies. Um, they're still going on. We don't have the results of them. We don't know. You know, there are anecdotal reports of, you know, good outcomes with them. And frankly, that's why we do research. So we don't have to study anecdotes, which in my mind is relatively meaningless. Right. And um, so that was sort of, you know, and then of course, the other thing I did was uh, call you and your brother and tell you that I didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, knowing I was going to be isolated, it's like, well, hopefully I see you again. And here we are, you know, five weeks later and you're interviewing me. So it's all good. Right. So yeah. how do you how do you distinguish between reports of, you know, this experimental medication has worked and then you see a report two days later saying there's no sign that this is working? Is it that the studies are flawed? Is it that they're just trying to get information out too quickly? What what's, What is going on? Well, I think you're very insightful. All of the above. So like this, like the reports early this week regarding hydroxychloroquine, for example, Right. which said that hydroxychloroquine has twice the mortality of using nothing. The problem was, first of all, the study hasn't been published. It has not been peer-reviewed. So we don't even know if it was a good study or not. And frankly, you know, these were stu- this was a study that was not blinded, was not randomized, I have no idea if all the sick patients got hydroxychloroquine and all the well patients didn't, which would explain a very high mortality rate with the hydroxychloroquine. So until there are good randomized studies where the groups are equal, Mm -hmm. um, I don't believe any of them anyway. And then there's all sorts of people saying, well, I was on it. Here's here's the funny thing, and this is what I've told people. They ask me, so were you on anything? I said, actually, I did receive a five-day, you know, usual course of hydroxychloroquine. They go, well, did it work or not? And I said, well, do you want it to work or do you want it not to work? Because I can prove it both ways. They go, what are you talking about? I go, well, I said, here I am. I'm better. So it obviously worked. Or or you went to the hospital and didn't work. I said, oh, yeah. On the other hand, I actually took my last dose the morning that I was admitted to the hospital. So you could say, well, it forced me into the hospital and it didn't work. That's why we need studies. Right. And uh, those studies will come out. So even some of the direct treatment of the virus, remdesivir, uh, you know, there have been a few companies that are working hard on this, and they're really important that we hopefully come up with treatment before even possibly the vaccine comes out. Yeah, because that's going to take a while. But, uh, you know, we have to do real studies that actually will prove the point one way, you know, one way or another for each specific drug. Right. 
So uh, I just want to get right into it. We have some questions on, um, we've had kind of questions from all over the place today, but um, we do have a few questions for you on Twitter. Um, so these are just from the investment community. So one comes from Evan Blaker, uh, who runs NetNet Hunter. Um, and he's actually been on the show before. So shout out to Evan Blaker. Uh, you are awesome and run a great website. So he, he says, glad you're all right. And he has two questions for you. Um, I believe he's in South Korea as well. Um, so question one, uh, what will kill more COVID-19 or the economic fallout from shutdowns and social distancing? Well, I believe that we're doing the right thing. Look, it's become a political question. I'm not a politician. On the science side, the people I speak with, besides the talking heads on TV, and I have a lot of respect for, you know, people like Fauci, et cetera. But during a pandemic like this, uh, to not try to isolate, mm-hmm. I think is absolutely nuts. I am not in agreement at this point with rapid reopening of anything. Um, I don't think we know enough. The we have and obviously with our lack of broad testing, we really don't know either the penetrance of the virus or the true mortality rates. And, you know, people say, well, it's not five percent like was advertised early. It might be one percent or even point five percent. And I go. Yeah, but point five percent is still five times the mortality rate of a bad flu season. Right. So in the least, um, this is a miserable disease. And, you know, we were also very focused on mortality for all the obvious reasons. I'm not saying we shouldn't be. However, like myself, there's a lot of morbidity. Um, look, I've been, you know, I've been working from home now for about two weeks. But, you know, I'm like tomorrow, I'll be eight weeks since my diagnosis. I'm a pretty healthy guy you know i play ball i play you know i i'm i play golf regularly and all i mean i don't think i can walk more than one hole right now if i had to so to say because i didn't die this is like fine is patently absurd and um so if you follow the science i think we will lose much more uh depending on the the clinical course of this virus which is unpredictable given the fact that it's a new virus. We, you know, and uh, we do have examples of things run rampant. Um, look, and if they're going to very stepwise, slowly introduce things back, that's how it'll work. You know, in the long run, anyway. Yeah. What the timing is is really what is. You know, I'm not in a position to say. But obviously, for individuals who are very high risk, look, we know the older you are, the worse the outcome. We know that the more comorbidities you have, the more prone you are to getting it and the worse the outcome. But it doesn't mean that younger folks um, aren't getting it and getting very sick. They are. And there are even deaths among people who are younger and have no uh, chronic disease. So, um, yeah, it's not for the, this is not for the lighthearted. And I would say it's the virus that is going to cause more problems. Interesting. And, look, and, and I'm not saying 
And I know people who are out of work. I know people whose businesses are failing. On a personal level, I feel horrible for all those people. It's it's really a terrible thing. Right. But uh, the illness running rampant in this pandemic would be much worse. So what do you think about, and we'll get to Evan's second question in a second, but what do you think about um, people, some of them who are very smart, which doesn't mean that they've done all the, the critical thinking, but, you know, say a guy like Michael Berry, um, you know, from Big Short, that guy, you know, he's come out very publicly on sort of the opposite stance and has kind of gone all in with his view that these shutdowns are ridiculous. So, like, for instance, on April 14th, um, he's started getting active on Twitter and he goes, uh, COVID plus dead at um, under 0.2% of the total population or greater than 0.2% population is totally uh, clearly untrue uh, with or without lockdown. Um, this number of infected persons is likely based on the true number infected of under 0.2%. Other than some hospitals in New York City, IFR and CFR is not affected by the lockdown, which is about decreasing number infected. Um, and that was a response to something he posted on March 23rd, where he says, if COVID-19 testing was universal, the fatality rate would be less than 0.2%. This is no justification for sweeping government policies, lacking any and all nuance that destroy the lives, jobs, and businesses of the other 99.8%. So, like, what do you say to someone like Michael Berry, who's been very I say he has no control. He's making up facts. I think he's just making up stuff. How does he know the fatality rate is under 0.2%? Yeah. yeah. Again, I'm not into politics. No, this is not. Um, this is not a political but you thing. Have to it's have just facts, and there are no facts yeah. out there that supports his point of view. That's what, how I would respond to that. Got it. Interesting. So you, it's kind of like everyone's become their own infectious disease expert all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the society we live in today, isn't it? Right. So Evan's question, uh, his second question is: He goes, um, Doctor Schlein, is it true that the virus is quote of the common cold variety? which will make a vaccine difficult, if not impossible, to develop? You know, that's a really interesting and a really good question. Um, so what, what he's alluding, what Evan's alluding to is, for example, the coronavirus that causes common cold. And, you know, when there are many viruses that cause very mild disease and do not elicit an antibody response, And so there's no reason to think that a vaccine would ever work in those situations. That is absolutely true. The hope here is because we know, at least at this point, before this virus mutates over years, it is severe. It is reasonably contagious. And it is, you know, looks like it has a very high morbidity and mortality rate compared to most others that we will elicit a strong antibody response and thus a vaccine would work. Um, that hasn't been proven yet until we have a good vaccine that works. Right. Uh, you know, interestingly, the serologies, uh, you know, in terms of testing antibody responses, uh, you know, are just coming into play. I mean, some people have had the testing. Uh, the testing will accelerate according to people I've spoken to, even in my own health system, Later this week, uh, in fact, I was told myself that come Thursday or Friday of this week, uh, I myself should be able to, you know, everyone of us that have been infected should be able to get tested to see what our antibody response is. 
Right. Now, there have been apparently studies done in animals, including primates, that have shown pretty good antibody responses to this virus and have shown immunity upon being retested. It has obviously not been done in humans. And um, so definitively to say that we have short-term immunity and that the vaccine will be developed, I think the odds are that, that those are both true. Uh-huh. But I think as the question uh, intimates, that has not been proven yet. Right. In- interesting. Um, we have another question. Uh, this comes from Darkfire Capital. And he uh, says, Dr. Schlein, thoughts on society thinking a loosely fitted cloth mask is a good substitute for distancing and proper hygiene, as I've been wist- witnessing over the last week. Yeah, I agree with your uh implication if i'm inferring correctly i I think a loose fitting i i you know in my short couple of weeks that i've actually been back out even driving to see what's going on out in my world um yeah i'm appalled to see some of the uh habits in terms of you know bandanas that are sitting above somebody's lips below their nose or I think if it's if it's tight, we know that it probably is better than wearing nothing. Yep. Uh, if it's tight and worn appropriately, if it's worn inappropriately, it probably does absolutely nothing. And, you know, the whole social distancing in terms of distance, you know, is all based on science and, you know, aerosolization and, you know, where the virus is relative to people speaking to each other. However, we know with a forceful cough and a forceful sneeze, the distance is actually greater. There's no absolute guarantee that you can't pick it up. But we also know that it's the contact and the touch uh, that really is most critical. So basically staying away and keeping the hands clean, you know, not going to your face is the number one most critical issue. But keeping a safe distance and not getting caught up in that kind of area. I think you're covering the mic on your phone or something. Is, it's sorry. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. All right. And so there's another question from, uh, speculatious. This is Twitter handle. And he goes, how would you prepare if you had to do this all over again? Well, again, I think it's more a political question. Um, our ability to track this virus back in February and early March was really poor. And I think, you know, a federal response, because it had to be everywhere. Um, we know there were early cases in California. We know there were early cases in New York. You got two coasts. You know, a single state couldn't control that. I think a good federal ability to track these things and we you know we do have the ability to do that if there was any fortitude to do it i don't think the federal government was interested or prepared to do that would have allowed uh certain moves more rapidly we'd have a better idea of the prevalence of disease And even today, the testing is still not widespread enough to really have say much about either fatality rates or penetration of the virus into our populations. I mean, people talk about herd immunity, which 
my understanding is takes, you know, over 60 percent of, you know, positivity in the population. And um, we have no idea where we are. And there have now been some preliminary studies. And I will tell you, they're all over the place, you know, from one percent. You're blocking the mic again. Upwards of 15 percent, depending on you know, where the study was done. And again, they're not large enough studies to really say anything that's particularly scientific. They're really pilot work in different areas. Right. Um, just want to make sure your hand isn't on the mic again. I think it's, I don't think so. Oh, it might just be a a connection issue then. Okay. Um, so there's a, actually I have a question. So talking about testing and test kits, uh, you know, we had an executive on who runs a company that sells face masks and test kits a few weeks ago, and he was saying that, you know, while he partners with hospitals, he's not able to get home test kits to people, um, that the government blocks that right now. And he was saying that, you know, I, I asked him at the end of the show, is there any policies that you think um, that you don't agree with what the government's doing? He said, yeah, the one thing I would change is allowing, uh, you know, people like us to send uh, home test kits so you can just do all this at home and you know he said yeah they're not going to be 100 percent accurate but typically when there's um you know if, if if you get a if you have a positive result that should be a warning sign to go go to a hospital potentially and if you have a negative result it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have it um uh, but he said he thought that was better than nothing do you agree with that and you know i do you think like you know don't you think, for instance, someone like me, I should at least be able to test myself just to know? And, you know, that might make the difference between me, you know, taking that risk with a face mask and going to Trader Joe's to go food shopping if I knew, you know, I had the virus but was asymptomatic. And then if I got a, a negative test result, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm in the clear. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I partially agree and partially disagree with the statement. Um. I would love to see home kits and just make it easy. Mm -hmm. I don't agree that any kit and any test is better than nothing because, you know, it's a matter of how many false positives and false negatives you get. I mean, if you had a kit, for example, where you had a 50% false negative rate and a 50% false positive rate, then actually just guessing from symptoms is just as good. So that's been part of the problem. And I think for any commercial uh, entity to say this is better than nothing, I I don't agree with. However, the premise that we have something that's good um, and that can be done easily and at home would be wonderful. Well, I I think the premise was that the false that the the inaccuracy tends to be the not the the negatives, not the positives. Or the no, positives. actually, okay. uh, there have been many many products. Uh, I know our health system in deciding which product to use uh, tested um, many many products. Some of them were pretty awful. Okay, the majority were really good, and we picked the one that had uh, sort of the most the highest. You know, combination of so why not uh, why not have whatever whatever ones you found good why don't you have why don't we have those at home because I don't think they've been developed yet those really good ones for home and I, I don't know where you know look I'm not yeah. an expert in where things are at from a home perspective um, but 
that that would be the challenge to industry. Right. Okay. Interesting. So I have a bunch of other questions that have been sent in. Um, so this question is, what is the biggest risk that you've ever taken, either in your personal life or in medicine? And how did you think about that risk? Um, probably having our first child. And so um, here you are interviewing me 30 years later. But, yeah, having the first kid was probably the greatest risk of uh, <laughs> okay. changing our life. And, yeah, so that, that's probably an honest answer. Got it. All right. And then another question that uh, came in is, what is your toughest pediatric case that you've ever encountered and how did you solve the problem? That's a tough one. You know, my background medically is pediatric intensive care. So I've taken care of a lot of like really, really, really sick mm-hmm. kids. I, I, I think it's really, I, I, it's a really tough question to answer. I, I would say this. I think the toughest cases in general are those where there isn't a clear road to recovery we don't have absolute answers to, you know, an algorithm for success where I've had to make decisions quickly because patients have been unstable. Mm. And listen, I'm human, you know, and sometimes those decisions were the right ones. And I think my intuition medically acutely has been pretty good. Over the years, I think I was known as a really good clinician. But I think there are times where I look back and said, you know, I wish I had tried the other course because this one clearly didn't work. And I I think generically, those are really the toughest cases I've had to deal with. I mean, there are cases that were more complicated and all, but I think the course of action was... um, you know, ultimately weighed in favor of the route we ended up taking. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Another question that has come in. uh, So all all these questions I want to give you are just questions that have come in um, in the last couple of days. Uh, So what, uh, so he goes exploring, this is from a hedge fund manager, exploring the, uh, can you talk about exploring the process for differential diagnosis and how that would relate to either the investing process of picking a money manager or picking a stock? A differential diagnosis and relating it to invest- the, the investing process, either picking a money manager or picking an investment yourself. Well, look, when we establish a differential diagnosis, we're taking major symptoms and signs that the patient presents with and then using evidence either that's a physical exam or it's laboratory or it's radiologic or anything else. So I would say in picking anything in life, including an invest investors, um, it's the same kind of thing. Like what is the evidence that that person knows what they're doing, has a track record, you like intuitively what you're hearing, And you take a course of action knowing that you can't necessarily predict the future based on the past. And, um, you know, it's not the same process, obviously, uh, but I I think that would 
maybe be a reasonable answer to that question. Okay. Uh, another question kind of going along the same lines uh, from an analyst at a hedge fund. And he goes, uh, doctors tend to be um, a very rational uh, group of investors, and they tend to be some of the best partners uh, to get capital from in the investment process. Um, so as a doctor, how do you decide who to trust with your money, and how do you make uh, money manager selection decisions? Well, I think it's the same answer I just gave. Um, yeah. I basically use individuals historically that have good track records that intuitively I like to talk to that have philosophies that are similar. I mean, from an investing perspective, I'm not terribly risk averse. And I am a big believer in in continuing to appreciate my portfolio over time. So I'm not the most conservative. Um, I'm not saying I'm the most risky either. Um, and then um, you sort of make those decisions based on both the evidence in terms of track record and what you're hearing from a personal perspective and using your gut. Interesting. And it's a here's another question. Um, with your background um, getting an MBA at Columbia, did you find that there were similar, um, there were certain principles or certain edges that you had? having a background in medicine and being able to, uh, you know, diagnose problems and think about things critically. Did you think that there were certain edges you had in your investment classes or principles that you, you carried over? Yeah, I love that question because particularly students met, you know, on the medical side come to me all the time. You know, should I go to business school? Should I get an MBA? And, I'm going to answer the question a little differently than it's been asked because I've thought about it a lot in that regard. It's like, what is your goal of doing it? What can you offer to the class? What can they offer to you at the point in your career? And so, and this is where I think the question comes together with my own point of view is at my, at the, I did it as like an older guy. I, you know, I got my MBA little over 10 years ago. So I was in my mid fifties, you know, and I did the executive program at Columbia and it was not a healthcare MBA. So I was one of two physicians in the entire class of 120. And when we were sitting in our classes, what I was able to bring to the class was, was one experience knowing like things change. Um, I also had a lot of leadership and management experience, which I think I I was able to confer to the class in open discussion and all that many of the younger guys and women, you know, in their 30s or late 20s um, did not have. And so, you know, it's it's nuanced. On the other hand, the fact that I was not with medical people, I think, was great because I was able to hear philosophies and concepts that were a little bit foreign to me also you know i had a rationality and i think that's the implication of the question yeah because of the experience but i was also able to hear outside views from different industries that i think in some ways i've been able to flavor my own medical decisions subsequently from an administrative perspective right um 
what do you think this this comes from uh an analyst at a it's a multi-billion dollar hedge fund i'll just keep it at that um what do you think are good practices as as child at child raising or, or parenting what did you do and how did you learn to do it how much is parenting and how much is innate and most very what he goes most very wealthy people don't worry for money they worry about their kids Well, I wouldn't consider myself very wealthy, but I know I'm very fortunate, and I would totally agree with the last comment. Um, I think a lot of what we do is innate, but saying that, I am a very big believer. I'm not a believer in, you know, you can't teach uh, old dogs new tricks. I I think everybody can learn. Uh, I will tell you, my my wife... um, you know, Eric's mom flavored my view of child rearing a lot, of being receptive, listening well, having the ability to change, not go with, and particularly not be stuck in either how our own parents did it or to try to do it exactly the opposite of our how our own parents did it. That the truth frequently lies somewhere in between. And in fact, you have to transition. And I think um, I, I think it's it's much more challenging. I mean, I tell my chief residents, you know, the trainees um, that this is great practice for parenting because, you know, at a trainee level, no matter how old they are, it is like dealing with a bunch of in many times adolescent behavior, et cetera. And yeah. um you know, it's that kind of uh, it's that kind of experience that helps whether you're a parent first and it helps you be a leader in medicine or in any industry or you're a leader in industry first. And then you have a kid and you take that over to child rearing, I think is true. Yeah. OK, so uh, there's just one or two more questions going to ask you and then wrap it up. Um, this comes from uh, someone else. And he goes, those advocating a Sweden-like response, yet Sweden has more deaths per capita than the United States. How do they rationalize that? And what is the justification for that? I don't know. Um, You know, I I know what they've done. I have not seen a lot of the rationale behind it. Frankly, I think it's an experiment. We'll see. But I I don't think I have a really good answer or insight into the situation. And then what do you think about um, Bill Gates' view to just shut down, kind of go the other extreme and shut down everything and and shut down the entire country for like two weeks? Well, again, um, scientifically, there is a lot behind that. I think if you ask a lot of the leaders of this and, you know, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, if you can get her to not politicize it, um, I think would agree with that, that that's really the only proven way to try to halt what's going on. The problem with it is that is two weeks the right number? And that's, you know, if we could sign on for two weeks, maybe we could actually do it. And that I think that's a little bit of the issue. But walk me through that. So let's say that I don't see that happening just just for legal reasons, but in, in in a world where that happened and that was the numbers and everyone even just voluntarily just decided to shut down the entire world, 
uh, and that was just purely a voluntary thing in a, in a make-believe fantasy world, isn't all that happens that the curve flattens, but you still end up over time having the same number of cases anyway? Isn't isn't that what the graphs show, or do, do I misread that? Yeah, I don't know. I think, again, I think part of the issue is that microorganisms, including viruses, need a host. Right. And if you let everybody who's active burn out where the virus is no longer replicating and it can't jump from host to host, then that's the concept of burning it out entirely. But isn't the problem that even if you have a few people that, you know, because families might be interacting or, or whatever, that you still end up, you might have a significant decline in cases, but the moment that the country opens up, those few people that still have it just infect everyone, you have the same thing all over again. Well, the idea is you do it long enough, two to three weeks, where even if it's contagion in the family, you still burn, run it, run its course. Got it. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough one. Yeah. All right. Um, like, that's all the questions... Um, that have come through to us, but you know, I really appreciate your time. And are there for people who want to stay updated? It just seems like this twenty-four hour news cycle. It's like every day there's some new thing, and there's conflicting things, and you don't know who to believe or who to watch. Um, what trustworthy resources? Like, what are resources that you trust? Where if someone wants to actually spend some time learning and just doesn't want a soundbite, uh, what are some you know resources or links that you would recommend people read up on? Hmm. Well, first of all, I think Cuomo's press conference every day has been one I have found uh, very little in it that is scientifically misrepresentative. So that's my go to from a day to day. And then I go to the science literature in terms of studies, if anything is published and, you know, to really go to source material and uh, uh, sort of have the data, frankly, Um so how, to, how, how would for listeners who actually want to because some some of the listeners actually do like doing that real deep digging how would they access that information if they're not a um, doctor not working at a hospital yeah i think summaries you know the new england journal of medicine for example um has been putting out a weekly covid rapid turnaround series of articles i think okay. for someone to just access that online go through the abstracts. I think even the lay person get a pretty good idea of what's out there. What, and then the editorials associated with that are usually written, um, in a way that I think is reasonable to understand. That may be one source. Okay. Um, All right. Great. Uh, well, if there's not anything else, you know, I really appreciate your time and uh, I wish you best in the recovery. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right, dad. I'll talk to you later. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.